0: Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. This episode is sponsored by the Program on Law, Communities, and the Environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. With me today is Emma Maris, an award-winning environmental writer and author of the recent book, Wild Souls, Freedom and Flourishing in the Non-Human World. Hi, Emma. Thanks for joining me today.
1: Great to be here.
0: So your book, Wild Souls, is really wonderful. It's packed full of um, really fascinating, interesting ideas and arguments, and you dig into many of the most complicated and difficult questions in applied environmental ethics today. Um, It seems to me that there's really two fundamental motivating motivating ideas for much of the book. So first is that the concept of nature, quote unquote nature, is confused and often harmful when thinking about conservation or other policies. And then second, that we ought to take seriously the lives of non-human animals, whether domesticated or not. Um, you explore this first idea, right, the problem with the, our understanding of nature in your earlier book, Rambunctious Gardens. So maybe we could start there. What's what's the issue? How has the concept of nature or how we use it or how we think about nature, how has that led us astray?
1: So the way we define nature and and the way we value nature is as you say, very complicated, and it's never been just one thing or just one way. But mm. uh, but one really p- sort of prominent strain, especially in North American nature uh, ethics and conservation ethics, has been to really focus on nature as a thing apart from humans, mm-hmm. and even to define it that way, that what is nature? and Nature is something that's not influenced by people. Um, And I think that that kind of uh, negative framing of nature as that which is not human has been really damaging uh, for a number of reasons. Um, The first is that it's just not really based in reality. Mm -hmm. It's not really correct. Uh, There isn't really a lot of or in fact, any quote unquote nature that isn't hasn't been at some point influenced by humanity, whether that's. You know, millennia ago when uh, large mastodons went extinct, possibly with human help, or whether that's five minutes ago because of climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, we live in a very a world where humans have influenced all all systems. Um, but focusing, too, on, on the nature that only the nature that hasn't been or that doesn't seem to have been touched by humans has been really problematic uh, when it comes to indigenous rights and indigenous mm-hmm. land management you know, for centuries, uh, colonialist powers just sort of said indigenous people didn't change nature. They didn't influence it at all. They just sort of lived within it. Um, and that is just really incorrect. And, and, uh, you know, we're learning more all the time when I say we, I mean, sort of like dominant Western culture is learning more all the time about the very complicated and interesting ways in which indigenous people did manage their landscapes. So denying all of that was sort of at the root of this, this kind of colonialist wilderness ethic. Um, and it also helps people deny rights and sovereignty rights to indigenous communities to this day, all around the world. Mm-hmm. So that's a real problem there. But I think you know ultimately one of the reasons why I'm so particularly interested in in breaking down this nature human duality is that it, if we insist on a nature without humans, then we are shutting off tons of really interesting and wonderful relationships that we could have with other species that could be good. Um, you know, there are ways in which humans and non-humans can interact, which are not, polluting or bad or toxic. And I really want people to see, be able to see those and be able to work towards those. But if your conceptual framework only defines nature as that which is untouched by humans, then there's no room for that in your sort of toolbox or in your approach to fixing things.
0: Hmm. So so yeah, so, so nature comes with all of this. Uh, the concept of nature comes with all of this uh, unattractive and 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 harmful baggage, but um, but in Wild Souls, you one of the uh, points you make that. I, I, one of the many points you make that struck me as interesting is um, you make a distinction between this notion of nature or natural and then the notion of wild. And you kind of argue that maybe this concept of wild could be salvaged. So what's the difference between you know uh, the, the notion of nature, which I guess is often defined in this negative way, as you say, just without human influence or natural, and the concept of wild that you think um, might be able to do some important normative work?
1: Right. So, and I'm glad you say might, because I'm still not completely convinced it can be rehabilitated. I think it's an open question, but yeah. So if nature or natural is sort of, you know, everything without humans, I think we need to retire that as a category. I just don't think it's helpful. Um, But wildness is sometimes used in a pretty overlapping way, but it can also contain ideas about the autonomy of the individual organisms That are not human. Like we talk about wild animals. We're talking about individual animals here. Um, And and there is a sense in which other organisms can have less or more autonomy from human control. And I think that that autonomy, you know, the autonomy of a fox that wakes up in the morning and decides where to go and what to do all day. Is something of value because it contributes to the flourishing of that fox. Hmm. So I think its wildness there, if we if we define it as its individual autonomy, is something that I think we can assign some kind of normative value to. Maybe.
0: Hmm. Yeah, interesting. I think we can probably return to that because that's a super interesting, um, interesting concept. But just to, you know, maybe just keep, keep laying the groundwork here is um, part of you know the, the I mean the the book is. Uh, a lot focused on questions of um, uh, wildlife management, but in particular kind of wild animal suffering and generally how human beings operate with um, non-domesticated animals. and, and that's, I mean, that's an important emphasis. And it's different from a lot of the literature historically in the animal welfare movement, which has been on domesticated animals, factory farms, the problems in factory farms, animal testing. Those are the kind of canonical uh, f- uh, emphasis of, of and the animal animal welfare, animal rights um, uh, contribution. So um, why do you think that is? Why do you think it we've we focused in that way on the kind of domestic sphere and then set aside these questions um, even within the environmental community concerning uh, wild animals, non-domesticated animals?
1: Yeah, so I think it makes a lot of sense for, for those who are concerned with the welfare or the rights of animals to focus on those situations like agriculture or pets or um, other situations Mm -hmm. where animals are sort of living in day-to-day, you know, under our control on a day-to-day basis, under human control. Because those seem obviously to be the cases where uh, we are already deciding the conditions of their existence. And so Mm. uh, kind of, you know, uh, making operational uh, changes to those conditions seems doable and straightforward. Um, so, and there's also a lot of them, right? Like, if you there <laughs> if you, are a
0: lot of them, yep. yeah. If
1: you look at the just the pure numbers of animals in the world, domestic animals are are. It depends on if you're looking at just vertebrates or mammals or which sort of subgroups, but there are there are very many, many domesticated farm animals in this world. So. Mm-hmm. I think it absolutely makes sense for people to have focused on them. Um, you know, the reason that I focused on on wild animals or sort of free-ranging animals is uh, because of I am essentially a, an environmental writer and I came to this question sort of sideways through questions about conservation and saving species and what we were doing uh, mm-hmm. to do that. So, you know, as part of my interest in um, what counts as nature and what our goals should be and are in conservation, I've spent a lot of time thinking about the question of non-native species. Mm -hmm. Um, The sort of traditional way to look at non-native species in conservation has been very negative, that they don't belong and they need to go, Um, and um, to really focus on negative impacts. um, And then there's this whole rhetorical framing of invasive species Mm -hmm. that, that kind of casts them as malevolent actors. Um, and I I've been critical of that for a long time, partially because it you know it, it this whole notion that every species has a place where it belongs, and once okay. it leaves that box, it's no longer good, is 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 based on this sort of static understanding of nature, or the idea that there's some kind of primeval state that came okay. before human influence that it's possible to return to, and and I don't think that's the case. I think ecosystems are incredibly dynamic, with or without. Human influence, and there is no one Edenic state for every ecosystem that you can go back to. Uh-huh. And since there isn't, the notion that there's a correct or incorrect place for every species of animal and plant also seems very suspect. Um, but in but in covering and 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 reporting about the ways in which conservationists have dealt with non-native species, I, I noticed this real sort of turn towards. Um, Dealing, so it is true that introduced animals, in particular, especially in, on islands, can be quite eco, uh, ecologically disruptive and can, in some cases, seem to threaten or actually cause extinctions. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm much more critical, I think, of the claims about uh, non-native plants on continents, but that's a side issue which I won't get into here. Um, but these, but these introduced animals on on islands can really uh, be threats to rare species. So uh, in order to deal with that, there's been this this emphasis in conservation on killing those introduced species. Um, So I became interested in that. And one thing that I noticed in reporting that is that sometimes the way in which these controls or, you know, these lethal control actions, there's a lot of euphemisms in this world, Mm -hmm. uh, were being undertaken were were pretty brutal. being, goats being shot from helicopters, poison that causes a lot of pain and suffering to kill rodents or cats or foxes, uh, traps, um, all sorts of methods that honestly, if you were to use them on a, a pet animal, you might get in legal trouble. Um, and so that is what kind of took me into being interested in looking into the the ethical ramifications of this, uh, of, of this... Uh, and I think part of the reason that we haven't done as much work on this is that it's somewhat new. The the mm. scale of conservation killing has definitely been ramping up in recent decades, especially in places like Australia, New Zealand, and smaller islands. Um, and, and I think that, be, you know, there are many, many, many ways in which we intervene or we shape the lives of wild animals. But I think until quite recently, we tended to gloss over those or to deny them. And we tended to hold on to this fantasy that wild animals were living a a largely independent existence Mm -hmm. that we were not involved with and that we could therefore just basically draw a line and say, they're on one side, we're on the other side. And our only ethical duty is non-interference, you know, let nature take Mm -hmm. its course Mm Um, And so I think we just kind of relied on this whole let nature take its course uh, rubric for our ethical dealings with, quote unquote, wild animals for generations. And it's only recently, I think, that we've begun to really realize that, first of all, all of these animals are living in a world that's been created by human activity. Some of them are suffering in a world that's been created by human activity. And some of them, we're going out and shooting individually in right. the head. So we need to start thinking about our ethical interactions with these, with all of these many different wild animals, and we can't just let them be a separate category.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes. I mean, right. So that that's that all that all you know is is super interesting. I, and I point out this this conflict in um, in my environmental law class. I teach you know the I teach the Endangered Species Act and so on, and. You know, the, our law is not about, it's kind of unconcerned in some ways, at least our conservation law with individual animals. It's concerned right. with, with populations and, and conservation. Um, and that term conservation killing, I'm sure uh, folks in the conservation community aren't, aren't, aren't thrilled with that, with that um because for the reasons that you say, there, there are euphemisms, um, and they're they're deployed for reasons because you know we want to take the emphasis off of some of the more um, brutal realities of, of of what we're engaged in. Now, you explore with some folks in the book kind of an alternative approach. Um, which I, I think has the label compassionate conser, uh, conservation. Right. Um, so, what, what is the idea there? Um, is that a viable approach? What are the what are, what's attractive? What's what's complicated about it?
1: I think it's an interesting beginning. Um, I don't think it's as fully fleshed out as I would like it to be in terms of it being able to give us kind of uh, guidelines for particular tricky situations. but but as a sort of an invitation to consider the ethical ramifications of all of this conservation killing, I think it was it's definitely well timed. Um, this is a this is a sort of a movement, a group of people, uh, conservation biologists who were kind of unhappy with the scale of conservation killing and, and maybe even more so with the normalization of it right with this mm. sort of way it was just treated as no big deal inside the field. Um, And the kind of uh, any kind of welfare ramifications were were minimized um, culturally inside the field. So so it sort of began with a a set of papers and and kind of invitations for people to think about whether they had done their homework in terms of thinking of alternatives to death as a Mm -hmm. tool um, and they they have they come up with um, in some of this, these early papers they come up with some sort of intriguing examples you know of creative fencing uh, to, instead of killing an elephant that's coming into a community why not put up some fencing that integrates beehives which elephants are are don't like uh, yeah. don't like <laughs> um, and. And the work that I cover in the book of Ariane Wallach is interesting because what she focuses on is essentially um, rather than trying to take Australian ecosystems that have a whole bunch of introduced animals in them back down to their native assemblage through large scale killing. She's interested in sort of seeing how these new assemblages shake out and whether the food webs that have developed there, or that might develop there in the absence of killing, uh, could actually be compatible with 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 the long term persistence of some of these small native animals that are sort of notoriously vulnerable to introduced predators. Um, where I think where I think it does it's maybe somewhat incomplete is that you know if if it, there are some cases where it does seem like you do have to choose between killing and losing uh, a rare species or a rare subspecies um, and then in those cases uh, you know the, the, they don't say well here's the magic uh, algorithm that can mm-hmm. uh, that can allow you to determine whether and and they and, and I think that they they differ amongst themselves about whether it's ever justified to kill in the name of conservation I think some of them say that it's not and some of them say that it might be if all other alternatives are have been, Ruled out, Uh, but actually, you know, now that I'm saying that, I'm I'm presenting this as though this is a weakness in their approach. But it's if it's a weakness in their approach, it's a weakness in my approach too, because I don't come up with any tidy answers in my book Mm -hmm. either. Mm -hmm. I don't have an algorithm for ethical reasoning that you can just put your conundrum in and get a tidy answer at the other end. Um, I think that when you're Ultimately, I think that when you're trying to balance animal, the indiv- individual animal welfare or rights against uh, the loss of biodiversity, you are not comparing apples to apples. These are different things, and so there's not really a mathy way to figure it out. You, there, at some level, it's going to have to be uh, a value call.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, no question about that. And in some, in some ways, I think I think of this as one of the hardest questions in environmental. Ethics and um, environmental morality, and one that you know we just haven't figured out yet. Or, I mean, maybe we'll never figure out, but um, but it's it's a really tough question. And, and kind of as you know, part of the reason I think we we can be hopeful <laughs> in a sense about maybe progress on this is that these are new questions, right? Humanity has not been grappling with. Um, with these questions for thousands of years, like we have many other moral questions. Um, the whole notion of you know conservation for its own sake and species preservation and this question of populations versus individual animals, all these are really incredibly new to, to ethical thinking. So in a sense, I'm, I don't think it's surprising that we would be kind of groping our way around um, in the dark to some extent. Um, we just haven't had time to, to think these issues through f- um, for very long.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point. Make, thanks, thanks for making me feel better about not having uh, definitive <laughs> answers. You're right. That You know, there, there may have been thousands of years of discussion about how to be a good person or what we owe each other as humans, but discussions about uh, why it's bad for a species to go extinct or, uh, you know, whether uh, a crustacean has a right to life. Uh, mm-hmm. These questions are far more recent.
0: Yeah. So, um, so in the and the book, you actually so just kind of these general, you know, framing issues and getting us broadly thinking about uh, this conflict between uh, wild animal suffering and autonomy and conservation. And then, you know, one of the useful, really interesting things that you do um, as well is you kind of march us through some specific conflicts, uh, specific issues where um, where these you know these questions are, are salient, relevant. Um, So you talk about wild animals as pets, zoos, hunting, um, uh, conservation reliant species and and several others. So maybe we could talk about some of those just to get a sense of how you kind of approach these issues. So um, one of the chapters I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed was the chapters on zoos, really interesting set of issues there. And, um, you know, maybe the that we could think of the motivating question is, should zoos exist? Are these good things to have, or are they not good things to have? You know, how do we balance the various considerations? so so what what did you end up um, landing on that question? should Should we have zoos or or are zoos kind of all things to c- considered um, not a good thing to have in society?
1: So I kind of organized these chapters in some ways in, in order from uh, cases where I, I felt more confidence in my mm-hmm. in my sort of final judgments. And then as the book proceeds, we get into sort of deeper waters where I think these, these sort of ultimate answers are harder to come by. But the zoos are closer to the beginning of the book because okay. I feel pretty confident that zoos as they currently exist are not a good thing uh, and should not exist. Um, <laughs> and uh, this wasn't a foregone conclusion, by the way, when I started the research, you know. Mm-hmm. I am I, uh, a mother. I have some kids. I'd taken them to the zoo. zoo I'd, right, you know, sure. I I hadn't uh, necessarily preformed an opinion on this. But, um, you know, zoos have very much positioned themselves as conservation organizations mm-hmm. in, the, in the last, um, you know, 50 years. And um, and I think uh, so I sort of took them up on this invitation to consider them as conservation organizations organizations that are that are making the world better for animals and I wanted to see if are is the good that they do for for wild animals worth uh, whatever suffering they're occupants might experience mm-hmm. um so there's sort of two ways that they might help wild animals in general one is through actual conservation like running breeding programs for endangered species on site mm-hmm. um and the other is by making people care about wild right. animals which is one right. that they lean into pretty heavily the sort of notion that when you come to the zoo you you, you become transformed and you become someone who cares about nature or cares about wild animals um and then on the other side, there is, you know, how much do zoo animals suffer for being in the zoo? Mm-hmm. Um, so I researched all of these questions. I And, I, you know, I called the American Zoological Association and I said, give me your best evidence that the zoo, you know, that your member zoos make the world better for wild animals. And I read every paper they suggested to me on on both the sort of direct conservation and the sort of indirect creating conservation focused people And the evidence was just really weak. Uh, Hmm. You know, there there are like 6,000 different species held in AZA zoos, and there's like 30 uh, different programs to breed and re-release wild animals uh, or or endangered species. So that means that there's like 5,000 plus species that are being kept in zoos and bred in zoos Mm -hmm. that will never get out. Like, I don't think we, we, we necessarily really think about this that hard when we're at the zoo, but like... Those animals that are in there, most of them, that we're not doing as much wild capture as we used to. Most of the animals you're seeing were bred by the zoo to live their entire lives in those cages. And then they're being bred again, and their kids will live their entire lives in those cages, and their grandkids will live their entire lives in those cages. Like, those guys aren't getting out. Right. Those elephants aren't getting out. Those tigers aren't getting out. You cannot reintroduce animals like that with big, complicated social lives and uh, sort of high skills hunting stuff that you have to learn as uh, in, in childhood. You can't let them out as adults and they'll do fine. Um, they don't get out. So uh, and they and they aren't happy in the cages there's lots of research about the behavioral effects of being in those small enclosures. You know, they pace, they rock, they pull Mm -hmm. out their own hair. Um, a lot of them are, uh, you know, zoos use quite a bit of drugs. They use sort of antidepressants and other drugs to kind of sedate their animals and to stop them from doing these repetitive behaviors. Um, elephants in particular die young because they're cooped up in there and they're on hard surfaces and it's just not a good life for them. Um, and there certainly are some animals that probably are fine in the zoo and probably enjoy their life just fine. You know, a, a smaller turtle, perhaps, or mm-hmm. some amphibians. But those are not the animals that people really want to go see. And if you, if you only kept animals in zoos that, w- that really thrive in the zoo, I don't think you would have ha- really any blockbuster animals left. Mm. There's almost a, a linear relationship between how much they suffer and how much they bring the people in.
0: I mean that that itself is is interesting actually I mean in some ways why why is that because obvi- I mean I don't know if obviously, but uh, one hopes it's not because the animals are suffering right that's not right. the reason and I, and the fact that we you know use drugs and other uh, tools to try to kind of hide I think that zoo managers know that people don't want the people the the audience doesn't want to think the animals are suffering right right um but there's but there's a relationship there, right? Which is probably that what people are most interested in is the animals who are um, more complex, have you know more dynamic. You know, something, something that is interesting. Yeah, I think it's a
1: couple of things. One is mammals. Uh, People like mammals. And mammals are just more sort of cognitively complex or it likes more cognitively like us and and Mm -hmm. more interested in um, moving around and social uh, interactions. And the other one is just pure size. You know, people Mm -hmm. like big Mm -hmm. animals and big animals don't have enough room. Mm -hmm. Um, The bigger the animal, the more squished they are at the zoo. And the elephants are the classic example. I wrote a lot about elephants in that zoo chapter and it was heartbreaking stuff.
0: Um, yeah, I'm sure just to do, yeah, doing the research. So one of the questions that kind of came up, and this is a little bit more of a meta question, because as you note, you know, there's just a lot of, you know, if we're talking about suffering straightforwardly, that's bad, right? So there would certainly at the very least need to be counterbalanced with a substantial amount of benefit, right. um, to justify it. If so, you're going
1: to be utilitarian about it, then yes.
0: Right. It, it, at the very least. If that, then it would be, you know, it's just, there wouldn't be a moral framework in which it would be okay. Right. Um, so then, um, but but one of the questions that came up is like, okay, if we were to say in principle, the zoos were a lot bigger, um, they were more, you know, almost like, kind of free range situations or the very large animals, um, just like elephants um, or lions or whatever, that just need big ranges and so on, um, weren't there, um, but there were smaller animals, small animals with smaller ranges. And in a sense, we could abstract away from the, the suffering components. So they weren't displaying this repetitive behavior. They were kept on surfaces that were appropriate for their bodies, you know, all that kind of stuff, which is just it's worth noting, right? Very different from the ex- current situation. So we're talking about something that is not the existing practice. Mm-hmm. Um, although some zoo managers might argue who knows, but, but let's, let's, let's just kind of take this as a hypothetical. One of the points that you argue in the book is the, that, that's it strikes me as quite interesting is even then you would have this autonomy question. So it kind of raises this issue of, um, sh- what should we be concerned with, with respect to these animals? Should we, we be concerned with um, respect to just, you know, their suffering, their moment to moment pleasures and pains, or should we also kind of have this, um, you know, the, uh, this different kind of concern, this separate concern uh, for their autonomy? And I take your view in the book to be that we should have that separate um Uh, concern with autonomy, and that was a kind of a point of conflict with one of the zoo managers that that you interviewed was the view, uh, you know, on on their part was uh, that's an illusion, right? Like Mm -hmm. once you've accounted for their, their pains and pleasures, that's, that's all there is to it. And there really isn't any additional kind of moral, um, you know, moral factors in the, in the calculus.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, I think that talking about whether animals value their freedom or their autonomy separately from their pleasure pain differential you know i do think we're on somewhat unsteady ground in terms of the science here you know we can't just just ask them we can't just interview nope. a fox or a or a squirrel and say do you like being free do you, does it bother you like <laughs> right. we can't say hey would you prefer to live in the zoo protected from predators and being assured of a meal every mm-hmm. single day but you can never leave again and your children can never leave or you can choose to roam free and decide what to do all day, but you right. might get eaten by a predator, and you might go hungry.
0: Right, you'll probably starve to death. Right, yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. We cannot ask them, which is which is extremely frustrating. Um, and I don't know if they would all give us the same answer. I think it might be very species specific, and in right. some at, at some level, it might even be individually specific. Yeah. Right. I think that if you asked humans this question, you might get different answers. Um, so, but but in the absence of being able to ask them, I sort of tend to think that we that for at least for the sort of more cognitively similar animals to us, like primates uh, and large mammals, bears, elephants, whales, um, the ones that have uh, large ranges in their sort of regular day to day lives outside of the zoo, ones that have social complex social lives, um, I think they probably are not happy if they cannot make their own decisions. Um, and I think one piece of evidence that we do have for this is their attempts to escape. Right. Mm-hmm. So I talk about the escapes uh, relying heavily on this great book uh, called Fear of the Animal Planet by Jason Freiball, who, which he just did an amazing job of, of of rounding up dozens and dozens and dozens of accounts of zoo escapes, which was difficult work because zoos tend to uh, go into sort of PR overdrive and trying to squelch. Mm-hmm. um, these stories from getting out or, um, and they always say that it's an unusual event, even though it's constantly happening. <laughs> right.
0: Right. And we have um, cages for a reason, right? Like yes. it, it, <laughs> they're kept in there. Right. Yeah.
1: So, you know, so certainly with, 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 uh, with gorillas, orangutans, uh, and some of the, and you know, those species will try to escape, uh, if, if, and and that to me seems like pretty obvious in, you know, evidence that they don't want to be there.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's at least prima facie evidence. I mean, I, I can imagine the counter arguments and, you know, this is just, you know, it's not like they've made a deliberate choice, right? Where they understand what's going on and they know what would happen. And, you know, um, the, I, I, I can imagine the arguments that this is not a, ref, a reflective um um, decision or that they essentially lack the capacity to even imagine these kind of different scenarios and what the, what they're gaining, what they're not. But I, I, but I, I, you know, I think that the point is still powerful that from a prima facie perspective, at the very least, they seem to have a revealed preference to want to get out. Um, and that, you know, that at the very least, um, provides some evidence that would need to be counterbalanced with some other stronger argument.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's very interesting. Um, so, uh, Again, there's lots of different possible directions we could kind of um, go from here, but um, I think uh, you know you have a, you have another chapter um, where you I think arrive at. A, a, a different kind of response in a way that I think is interesting and, and, and I'm curious to hear, to hear more about. So this is the chapter on hunting, right? So on the one hand we have zoos keeping animals for display. They, you know, they make arguments about the value for conservation um, that they undergo, but there's obviously animal suffering and potentially autonomy interest on the other side. Uh, and then, you know, there's almost a similar, there's, almost a similar kind of dynamic with respect to hunting, where folks who are uh, uh, positively disposed to hunting as a practice, they make, they frequently make conservation related mm-hmm. arguments. Um, this is good for conservation. It raises money, it, it raises awareness, it keeps people engaged with nature and so on. And, you know, in fairness, the uh, uh, traditionally the environmental movement, uh, certainly in, the, in its earlier years, included um, a big contention of the uh, of folks who, you know, are uh, hunters and 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 fishers and and the like. Yeah, uh, that's become more polarized over time. But certainly in the early days, that was that was the case. And um, and then on the other side, you obviously are sh- you know shooting an animal and right. killing it. Um, and um, in some sense, you know, killing something seems like a very, I mean, uh, that's a that canonical example uh, of of uh, violating someone's interest, right? For, for certainly in, in the in the human context. Uh, there's nothing worse you could do to somebody than kill them. Um, and so you might imagine that you kind of end up in a similar place. Um, you think zoos are bad uh, for the reasons that you articulate in the book and, and just now. But hunting, you come up with a, we, I, I take you to be in a different position. So so what are the what are the different dynamics that you see in these different contexts? And yeah, what are, where do you come down on, on questions related to hunting?
1: Well, I take a step back and say that, you know, I think that in both of these categories in sort of the captivity uh, for display category or the captivity, you know, category and the hunting category that there are that, It's going to be very case by case in both of these categories. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, to talk to 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 move back to zoos for a moment, you know, I think that that I at the end of that chapter, I sort of sketch out ways in which zoos could transform into something that would be much less ethically problematic and principally just by the simple move of giving up uh, the breeding. Um, which would sort of immediately overnight transform them into something much more like refuges where animals just sort of live out animals that cannot be re released into the wild, live out the rest of their lives in ease and comfort. Um, and, you know, I, I, I kind of can imagine a world where, where zoos only breed animals that they think they can let out someday. So only sort mm-hmm. of conservation relevant breeding programs. And then other than that, they're essentially refuges. Huh. And then here, a lot of the ethical problems I have, with zoos sort of evaporate and yet you still might have something that from the point of view of your five-year-old who you've taken out on a day is somewhat similar. You know, they get to see animals, they get to interact with other species, they get to have a hot dog or a vegan hot dog, whatever. Um, and, uh, and so, so there's, so it's not all, it's not all or nothing, right? Like there are, there are Mm -hmm. shades, there's ethical shades within the category of, of zoos. Um, and I think this is even more so the case within the category of hunting. There's no one, you know, answer for is hunting okay? Because there's so many different types of hunting. Who is doing the hunting? What are they hunting? Are they hunting to feed themselves? Are they going to eat it or are they not going to eat it? Are they eating it because they don't have uh, alternative ways to get protein? Or are there lots of ways for them to get a protein? And in fact, it's more expensive and difficult for them to hunt than it is to go to the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Um Do, you know, do they have some kind of spiritual practice that goes along with the hunting um, or uh, do they themselves see it as something where they are winning over the other species? Um, And are they hunting a rare animal or a common animal? Are they hunting a an animal that uh, has a lot of capacity for pleasure and pain or an animal that has less capacity for pleasure and pain? Um, Are they doing a a sort of a beautifully uh, clean and crisp uh, shot? to mm-hmm. the heart or head that instantly fells the animal so it barely registers any pain? Or is it a horrible, messy affair where they're tracking it through the woods for hours um, while it slowly bleeds to death? So there are so many different um, factors to consider when it comes to hunting. Um, but I don't think that all hunting is wrong. Um, it's
0: possible for there to be ethical hunting.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, and I mean, and you know, it's interesting you said that You know, from in the human context, uh, the sort of worst thing you could do to someone is kill them. But like, actually, I think some people would say that holding someone captive for their entire lives Hmm. might be worse than killing them. (laughs) You know, so... And even Peter Singer himself in his uh, original book, Animal Liberation, was not as worried about killing animals as about them suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, because from his perspective, animals that couldn't make complicated future plans, if you killed them instantly and painlessly and you weren't cheating them out of, you know, that one last trip to Europe that they wanted to make after they retired, <laughs> um, that, that that was actually a lot less ethically troublesome than than causing them ongoing Pain as you uh, kept them in captivity for agricultural purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a lot to consider here. Um, I also, you know, am, there's a lot of sort of political and social elements um, to to people judging each other's hunting, different communities, mm-hmm. um, and and there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of old ancient practices of hunting that have an interesting emphasis on reciprocity between the parties. Now whether you uh, can uh, whether you believe that there's true reciprocity or not between a, a hunter and a prey, uh, I you know, a, a, an animal that they hunt that they feel that in some sense has either given them permission or that some sort of spiritual, uh, realm has given them permission to take, um, you know, that's going to depend on your own sort of spiritual slash religious outlook. Um, but that certainly from the point of view of some of those hunters, there is uh, an ethical exchange going on that, that that this is happening within an ethical system.
0: Yeah, so this is interesting. I find this interesting um, in, in particular. So um, this was a part, a part of the book that I, I and I've this is something over the years I've, um, I grew up in a, in a, in a hunting community. I grew up in upstate New York, all my family, you know, my male family members actually, although that, I think that's changed somewhat, um, Mm -hmm. hunted. Um, the, um, so the, the attitude of the hunter towards the, um, towards the prey, I think is a very interesting question and like the moral significance of that. So I can imagine kind of two arguments. So so one is very clearly about the animal suffering, whether it's common or not and the like, right? So, and I, and there's a lot of, hunt certainly the hunters I grew up with and the and the folks that I know take all of that very seriously, right, mm-hmm. um, you know, having the skills necessary to, um, you know, to, to, to aim accurately and kill the thing that you're trying to kill quickly, right? Right. Um, and you know hunting within the rules, right? Hunting, you know, you get your permits, you pay, you pay your fees, and all all of that, right? And
1: the rules of fair chase and all that kind of.
0: Exactly, all all, all of these um, kind of ethical guidelines, and then and so then we can kind of separate that out. I think this is the, the hypo in some ways, right? To separate out that person who has an internal attitude of like. Uh, disregard, uh, not like ethical disregard, like they'll follow the rules, like they recognize that these are the rules and they're kind of like a, a rule abiding, law abiding person. But they, they recognize these rules like vis-a-vis human society, let's mm-hmm. just say, right? Um, th- these are the rules that of their society and they're going to follow them because that's the deal that, that one lives in, in society. And then there's another person who has a different ethical system where it's, it's, it's more reciprocal reciprocal with the, with the broader world, right? Like I'm going to die someday and something's going to eat me. So this is okay. It's all the big circle of life kind of thing. And, and maybe there's some implicit permission, although I think that's very weird. I mean, I will admit, I, I think that that's very tricky. That can be very tricky because I, um, implicit permission being a tricky thing to, totally. to, to deal with. I, I mean, yeah. right. Human beings vis-a-vis each other, if I run around thinking, oh, well, you know, people have implicitly given me the right to do this or that to them, um, you know, we wouldn't accept that, right? So, um, So, yeah. So I wonder, yeah, if we could just unpack this a little bit. So we've had the two different folks. We have the one who's really... Uh, doesn't feel a lot of ethical obligations or reciprocity with the wild animals, but still follows all the rules because um, he or she feels bound to do so. And then the person um, who uh, has this different ethical framework of implicit permission in the circle of life. Do you see those as, and, and I guess the, sorry, this is a long lead up, but I guess what strikes me as the most um uh, kind of curious element of this is the animal's not going to know the difference <laughs> between yeah. these two people. And so why is it important? If it's important, it strikes, I think that's the question we need to answer is why does it matter if the animal who's the kind of the, the, what, who we're worried about here in some sense is never going to perceive this difference.
1: Well, I I mean, it depends on what kind of ethical framework you subscribe to. Um, But I think that there's certainly parallels in our human interactions with one another. I mean, if I uh, am just walking down the street and all of a sudden I feel somebody push me and I fall down off a bridge and die, Mm -hmm. uh, whether the person accidentally pushed me or pushed me with malice aforethought is not germane to the fact that I am dead. But as a society, we judge the person very differently, whether, you know, based on whether it was intentional, unintentional, whether they, even whether they did it in the heat of the moment or whether they planned it five days in advance, we're, we're, mm-hmm. we, we judge them more harshly for the latter. So we do take intentions into account um, when judging the sort of blameworthiness or sort of uh, the responsibility even for, for certain actions. So I think that there's precedent for that idea. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> I, yes. I mean, you, there's precedent for taking into account, um, uh, as, of course I'm at a law school, so I want to be a pain about all this stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. is so mens rea, right? Intentionality in the context of crimes is, uh, and in some sense is a little peculiar, um, f- f- because it doesn't, as you know, it's like, if you're, you're dead either way, what do you care? Right. Right. Um, but, um, what we're what we're normally when we're talking about there is we're talking about the intentionality of the act, like whether you intend to do it or not. Right. Um, so, like, a, if you hit someone with your car while you're driving, uh, and it's not your fault at all, like, say there's a, a freak tornado that deposits a person in front of your car right, right. while you're driving, um, that's non intentional. It's not you're not even being negligent. So we just kind of we let you off the hook for that. And then if you're driving negligently, we hold you somewhat more responsible, but these are grades of like kind of intentionality. And in the hunting hypo that I'm setting up, they're both fully intentional acts. So they're both at that level. It's just the, in some sense, that what's different is the attitude of the hunter. Like, yeah. so like, so murdering, so, so let's just imagine you kill someone fully intentionally All right. Yeah. Let's say a person. But you do it under, you know, like a a, a religious view that it's appropriate to do that in that situation. You're like it's like a human sacrifice or something. And then as opposed to someone who does it because they don't like their face. Right. And, you know, the law would treat those people exactly the same.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, you might, if you're going to set up a hypothetical, I suppose one that might uh, be germane would be a euthanasia case where Mm -hmm. uh, somebody was, Mm -hmm. uh, thought they had the person's permission to kill them, thought, Mm -hmm. in fact, that the person was all for it, and had asked Mm -hmm. them to, but it was a miscommunication, and in fact, that person did not agree to be euthanized. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you're working in a spiritual framework where you feel that the prey has, or the prey's uh, kind of spiritual owner or or counterintuitive, Counterpart has given you permission, um, mm. and if you yourself, as somebody in a Western framework who doesn't buy into that, sees that as a miscommunication or a misunderstanding, then I still think that there's some different level. Of, but, but.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It's it's a, it's a tough. This is just yeah. tough stuff to think through. But leaving
1: yeah. all of that aside, too, I mean, I think one reason that I was really influenced by the work of Val Plumwood here, who's a was an Australian philosopher who mm-hmm. who talked a lot about what you just called the sort of circle of life, right—the the eating and being eaten stuff. Right. Um. And and so she pushed back against uh, what she sort of called like the vegan case for sort of never for being very purist and never mm-hmm. hurting or eating animals. Um. And there's a lot of uh, ways in which that Kind of attempt to, you know, to fully do no harm to any sentient creature is doomed um, and is, mm-hmm. and kind of a denial of our ecological existence. So, for example, if you are fully vegan, you're still eating food that was grown on land that was cleared to for agricultural purposes and all of the you know plants and animals that lived there before it was developed were displaced and on an ongoing basis presumably the the any kind of pests what we call pests any animals that would eat that food mice mm-hmm. birds uh, those are all have to be either scared off or killed in order for the grain and the other produce to be grown uh, you know there's there's certainly rodent control in food storehouses in the grocery stores they're killing uh, mice and rats that might want to eat this uh, non animal food y- so all along the production of food involves you can't you cannot uh, you cannot exist without eating and you cannot eat without eating life Either that has been uh, grown on land that some somebody else could have lived on, or that could have fed something else, somebody gets the sunlight, the energy from the sunlight that mm-hmm. comes to the ground. And if it's and and you cannot exist without um, being an ecological being without influencing other parts of the food web. And I think that the i you know, certainly, I've got no truck with people who, who are vegans or who seek to do as little harm as possible in their right. ecological existence. But the idea that you can sort of fully opt out, I think, is a little bit of a fantasy.
0: Yeah, well, it certainly is. And I wonder if, um, you know, what the, just kind of channeling my vegan friends, <laughs> what their response would be. I think it would be something along the lines that you said, is that, oh, of course, that's that's true true but the goal is just to minimize right yeah. is, um and so so then so what's the takeaway then f- from that so so there's the fantasy element which we can say you know sensib- sensibly one shouldn't hold on to a to a fiction that you could somehow live abstracted now does that take us all the way to where does that bias other than just a recognition of the fact that we live in the world and that we will cause some suffering and then the vegan would come back and say yeah yeah so therefore you should do as little as possible. And then I think the argument though, isn't, it's something more than that. It's something that, okay, once you recognize this role that you play, and it's kind of this, there's some reciprocal element to it, that um, you're not under a, a strict obligation to minimize suffering necessarily, that you could engage in activities like hunting that aren't, you know, again, strictly um, uh, suffering minimizing.
1: Yeah, I mean, now we sort of we're, we've we've gotten to kind of where I end up near the end of the book, which is we're just grappling with this um, difficult k- terrain, which is that this question of why is it okay for for us to eat other creatures or. Are we okay with the fact that someday other creatures will eat us? How do we how do we cope with the fact that we are ecological beings? This takes us back to a question that shows up at the beginning of the book, which is why do we care about biodiversity in the first place? Why do we mm-hmm. care about nature, whatever we, you know, quote unquote nature? Um, if especially if we give up on this notion that nature is the stuff is anything that humans don't touch, that it's the absence of humanity. W- why do we care about other species and and these ecosystems? And it comes down to sort of the same thing, which is the way that sort of energy and matter flow through these systems, the way that they're all interrelated, the way that these food webs are all connected from the sunlight to the plants, to the animals, to the parasites, to the to the the maggots that eat you after you die <laughs> and the fungus that grows in the dirt after the baggots have died. It right. all uh, is something it adds up to something that we value a lot that many of us value very, very deeply, and in almost, let's be honest here, in almost a religious way. But we find it very difficult to talk about exactly what it is that we're valuing here, how to measure it, how to how to uh, put our fingers on it. But the for me, recognizing that there is something good or valuable in that flow of energy means that being part of that flow of energy isn't necessarily always bad ourselves, uh, if that makes sense. I, I, but I think that this is we get on thin ice here. I get out yeah. on, um, this is the part of the book that is harder for me to talk about because it isn't, um, it, it isn't something you can talk about very easily within the sort of Western scientific frameworks that I am more used to.
0: Yeah. Or well, also I think you used earlier point we were talking through, this This is just new stuff. This is just new ways of, of, of talking, maybe within the Western tradition, but um, I'd offer that, you know, um, these questions just given humanity's scope of influence and powers and so on. These are just, these are just different than the the tasks that the moral tasks that we faced in the, in the past. So it's not that, um, uh, that difficult or that surprising that we would have a hard time talking about it. One of the things I think is, this is related to, this is kind of fun. Uh, you know, I think this is the, this is the fun stuff in some ways. The thinnest ice is always the funnest part, right. um, is, uh, you know if we look to that flow of energy and all that kind of stuff the circle of life the uh the, 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 the putting aside the notion of nature right which is the the non-human um you know the, the idea that there's this cordoned off non-human thing but rather just broadly the life (laughs) that -hmm. that humans are entangled with uh, but that has existed far long before humans were around and will likely exist long after humans and certainly exists on the planet outside of the sphere of 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 directly you know human beings themselves there's lots of other life forms Um, you know if if that's something we value suffering is a huge part of that right you, right. So suffering has always been part of life. Life, you know, since life has been around, um, certainly since conscious uh, subjective experience of any kind has been around, there's been there's been pain. Pain just exists alongside pleasure. And um, so that's kind of on the one hand. On the other hand, we think of suffering as the most, you know, within Within human morality, anyway, as the most basic negative thing, if we're going to say what what are the what are the the atoms of moral reasoning, you know, right. w- w- one argument might be well, you know, at least you know, pain and pleasure is is even within a rights framework, we care about suffering. It's it's very peculiar to say oh, I'm indifferent to other people's suffering, <laughs> right. but yet I'm very moral. Right. Uh, it would be uh, seems like a contradiction. So so how do we? I mean, of course, how do we even to, to ask the question how do you reconcile that is maybe ridiculous but how do we even start to think about reconciling these two seemingly very contradictory things to value one is life writ large and the other hand is to say oh suffering is bad uh, how do we how do we square that um, uh, those two principles with each other
1: yeah so you know earlier you asked well why don't why haven't we asked all these questions about wild animals and their mm. and our ethics there and i and i think that another reason is that it leads us to this question, and it's mm. a scary question, and we don't want to think about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so if you if you start thinking about this sort of whole question of wild animal suffering, which is the phrase that you tend to see people use, um, it opens up this exact conundrum, which is, uh, yes, the world is filled with suffering. And if you were to try to reduce or eliminate the suffering in the non-human world, you, that would mean destroying all ecosystems because ecosystems are built on food chains food webs and Mm -hmm. food webs involve one organism eating another organism and in a lot of cases arguably even in the cases of plants depending on how you define Mm -hmm. suffering that involves suffering so you know the first time that you realize this is um I think it's a memorable moment, or at least it was for me. I was sort of reading along about this, sort of, uh, I remember this very clearly. I was reading along some kind of internet philosopher proposing that all, uh, you know, all predators be given contraceptives so that right. no more predators could ever exist, so that uh, we would no longer have any prey animals be um, be harmed by lions and tigers and wolves. Right. Um, and you know, you and my response was of course like, well, that's absurd. I mean, that would, that would get rid of the thing that I've spent my life caring about, which is, which is sort of, you know, ecosystems and nature and, and others, and the autonomy of all of these other ways of being a living creature. And, and then you just suddenly realize that, that, all of these ecosystems are just drenched in blood. Mm -hmm. And and you're just standing on this huge pile of skulls going back thousands and millions of years. Millions, that's right. And it's just absolutely overwhelming. How could we love this thing that is woven out of suffering and pain and death? Um, So yes, I think figuring out how to reconcile this is probably one of the biggest questions that in my life Uh, And I think it's an important one for all of us to consider. It's ironic that so many people that identify as nature lovers also identify as animal lovers. Mm -hmm. And yet, at some fundamental level, the two things are at odds. Um, So, again, I find a lot of, um, you know, Val Plumwood doesn't offer uh, final answers. But I do think that there are some glimmerings in her writings that help me um, Mm. uh, with the idea and I think that one of the things that she says, and I don't have a quote in front of me, so this is a total paraphrase here, but basically that we have to accept uh, the, the internal paradox and not try to resolve it. Huh. That the resolution of this uh, is not un- ultimately possible, but that there are ways of existing while holding to irreconcilable values in your heart at the same time, and that ultimately that is the only way to go forward. I gave myself vertigo writing this book uh, by the end of it. I thought, holy crap, like, you know, and the other, and the other real the moment for me was, was watching my kids eat dinner one night and realizing mm. how deeply satisfying I found it to watch them eat. <laughs> um, and <laughs> Interesting, that yeah. watching them, my, my beloved children eat meant the ends of all of those other organisms, you know, Mm -hmm. I forget what they were eating. I don't know if it was scrambled eggs. I don't know if it was a chicken, you know, they're not vegetarians. I don't Mm -hmm. know uh, what they were eating, but I was into it because Mm -hmm. as somebody who loves them, I want all of the photons in the world to go into their mouths, you know, Mm -hmm. I want all the energy to go to them, but hoarding all the energy in the, the, the individuals that we love is not compatible with it flowing around in this crazy network and keeping everything alive and vibrant and diverse. So yeah, it's, it's, it's very difficult to wrap your brain around.
0: Yeah, it really is. I mean, and these are, of course, really fascinating, fascinating questions. I, I don't want to end us on a sour note, but, but Schopenhauer has, you know, basically talks about this, right? So he says, if you want to, if you want to know whether the world is good or bad, um, just think about predator and prey and the, and the pleasure of the predator and the pain of the prey. Um, but on the other hand right you could take that dim view of the world and that, but then that forces you into this this take that is um, just very not life-affirming right' it's, right. it's, it's very um, it seems to undermine the whole enterprise of morality to then just say that the world is bad that that does seem like a, a very strange place to add up but if you you um, but otherwise, you you are stuck with seemingly these two contradictory ideas.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can you can choose to build like a completely internally consistent position, which which ends up with the world being and and it, and it is very much the case that evolution is a completely immoral process. It was mm-hmm. not designed to create goodness uh, by anyone or anything, right? It's just it just happened. Um, so, uh, but I, I don't think that it's really possible psychologically for anyone to live on planet Earth uh, if they really think that. It's you know that that it's just bad to the core, and our cur- and our, our sort of individual experiences of being in the non-human world, or maybe sometimes in the human world, and having experiences of sort of awe and joy and um, beauty and reverence. Uh, these are all to me hints that there is something good out there.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I th- these are all super fascinating issues. It's been a really fun conversation. It's a wonderful book. I, I appreciate all the, the work and the the craft that went into that. Um, encourage folks to read it. And it's been, uh, it's been wonderful chatting with you, Emma. I appreciate you taking the time.
1: Yeah, thank you so much.
0: And listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, let us know. You can give us a like, a rating, subscribe to the podcast, and follow us on social media. It'd be great to hear from you. Till next time.